Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Jabot. This week in a special edition of SITREP, we look back at the biggest stories of 2010, from the Defence Review to Afghanistan and everything in between. Where do we stand and what challenges will we face in the year ahead? We'll try to answer those questions in the next half hour with our specially selected panel of experts from Rusi, Chatham House and, of course, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Headlines. A British soldier who died in an explosion in southern Afghanistan on Tuesday has been named by the Ministry of Defence. It was Corporal Stephen Dunn from 216 Parachute Signal Squadron. His family say he died doing a job he loved and excelled at. The RAF is reassuring servicemen and women that if they're due home from Afghanistan for Christmas, they will get back to the UK in time. Disruption from the snow across Britain caused a backlog, but the Air Force says it should be cleared during Thursday. The parents of a woman from Bristol who's been missing for almost a week say they fear she's been abducted. Joe Yates, who's 25, disappeared last Friday after going out with some colleagues. The coat, mobile phone and keys were found in her flat. Her shopping was not. And New Zealand's military has released hundreds of documents detailing claims of sightings of unidentified flying objects. The Kiwi X-Files date from 1954 to 2009. They include drawings of flying saucers and alleged examples of alien writing. A New Zealand Air Force spokesman said the military doesn't have the resources to investigate the sightings. That's the latest. I'm Suzanne Chislett. Welcome to SITREP's Review of the Year. There's just a couple of days to go till Christmas. And this week, we're going to take a look back at 2010's biggest stories. And to help me make sense of the last 12 months, I'm joined, as ever, by BFBS's defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hi, Christopher. Hello. Um, a lot to talk about. How would you sum up 2010? It's the year of change, isn't it? I mean, the first thing is to think about is the change of government. And if there hadn't been a change of government and the sort of government that came out of the general election in the middle of the year, then we wouldn't have had the strategic defence and security review that we did have, not in that form. So that's different. There's also the introduction of the National Security Council, which has never been heard of before in the United Kingdom. That's new. We'll have to see how that pans out. Uh, we've also got... And I suppose it's the most important story of the year, although it's all just happening this week. Back in April, the Americans and the Russians signed a nuclear weapons deal. It's called the START, New START Treaty. Um, this week, Congress, at last, the Republicans in Congress said, OK, we will have a vote uh, this week to ratify it. That's a huge thing. It, 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 it is the one single foreign policy uh, achievement of Obama. It affects us directly because it allows the British to say, we, our Trident system, we may put part of it into the new mood of, of nuclear weapons uh, disarmament programmes. And so what's happening in Washington this week... As we speak. Uh, is, ..will affect, probably affect... Uh, the Royal Navy, British Defence, British Defence Policy for the next 30 or 40 years. Well, with me also today is Michael Codner, Director of Military Sciences at the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Michael, welcome. Uh, big changes announced in the military this year then? Well, yes and no. As, as Christopher has said, the Strategic Defence and Security Review came out in October. Uh, that was meant to be uh, a fundamental uh, review of British uh, defence policy and military strategy. What we actually have is a, a very short-term review, for good reasons, um, uh, to do 
do with Afghanistan principally, um, but uh, the big, big decisions have essentially been deferred to uh, 2015. There have been some big kit decisions over um, carriers, Harrier aircraft, um, cutting down the RAF's uh, fleets, etc., and some reductions in the army and heavy armour, most importantly, and the return from Germany. But these are all really um, adjusting the books rather than telling us where we're going to be going for the longer term as far as defence is concerned. Also in the studio today is Claire Spencer, head of the Middle East programme at Chatham House. Claire, welcome. Um, a lot of the focus on Afghanistan, the Strategic Defence and Security Review. Um, do you think the Middle East agenda has really slipped out of the public mind at the moment? Well, I think it's been uh, it's been uh, centre stage in the sense that there was another attempt to broker negotiations between the Israelis and Palestinians, uh, but we end the year once again in limbo. And I think the big question mark is: is this just another hiccup in a process of a negotiated peace deal uh, between Israel and Palestine, or is it a step change? In other words, uh, things have gone beyond a negotiated settlement. Uh, the realistic uh, prospect of a Palestinian state may be something that the Palestinians are now suggesting they will declare unilaterally uh, later in this year. They've, they've touted September. Uh, we've got to see the reactions, too, of the continued Israeli settlement activity uh, from people like Hamas. We don't know what they're doing as, as a movement, indeed Hezbollah in Lebanon. So it's a very uncertain time. All right, well, the outcome of May's general election hung in the balance for five long days after the votes were counted. And the arrival of Britain's first coalition government for 60 years has meant change across the board with defence no exception. The new Defence Secretary Liam Fox confirmed a strategic defence and security review would be completed within months. Facing a massive budget deficit, the top priority was to find big savings and the announcement included some painful decisions and big changes. James Hurst reports. We knew that whoever won the election, there would be a defence review. Once the tenants of Downing Street were decided, though, the speculation began about how much money would have to be saved at the Ministry of Defence. There were months of political wrangling, speculation and some fairly substantial leaks. But in October, they just became part of history as the results of the Strategic Defence and Security Review were revealed. This review sets out a step change in the way we protect this country's security interests. The list of changes was long. The decommissioning of HMS Ark Royal and the scrapping of the Harrier aircraft fleet grabbed the headlines and the controversy. The Prime Minister was challenged about it by a Harrier pilot on a visit to PJHQ on the day of the announcement. I'm a Harrier pilot. I've flown 140 odd missions in Afghanistan and I'm now potentially facing unemployment. How am I supposed to feel about that, please, sir? We do have to make decisions for the future, and the military advice is pretty clear. It is right to keep the Typhoon as our principal ground attack uh, aircraft working in Afghanistan at the moment, and it's right to retire uh, the Harrier. The decision leaves Britain without carrier strike capability for a decade, but the two new carriers will be built. Only one of them will definitely go into service, carrying joint strike fighter aircraft. Also for the chop in this review, the RAF's programme for new Nimrod aircraft. Three RAF stations, including Kinloss, face closure. Across the services, it was announced 17,000 jobs are to be cut 
and the army is to leave Germany over the next 10 years. Some difficult news in there for many, but it did at least end some of the uncertainty. General Nick Kaplan commands British troops in Germany. What we didn't know was the time frame. Now we do. We've been given the challenge, everybody out by 2020, so that's the challenge. We've got to come up with a plan now to make that work. Some of the changes have already begun in the last few weeks. We have seen HMS Ark Royal and her Harriers and company on a farewell tour of the UK. I think it's crazy, if I'm honest. Devastating. To be truthful, I'm not, we're not happy with it, none of us are. No naval officer wants to see any ship decommission, and particularly decommission early. But one understands the very difficult decisions we're having to make across all government departments, and defence is not immune to this. But there are other decisions that still need significant detail before they're implemented including, for example, how many of the job cuts will mean redundancies. The Navy takes the biggest cut proportionally. It has 5,000 posts going. Kim Richardson is from the Naval Families Federation. It is a big number. I, I really do think we've um, been hit quite hard on that front. So I think the sooner we can get that detail, the better so that people are able to plan, know what the future holds for them. The government's critics said it was cost-cutting with no real strategy, something the government denies. But in an interview with British Forces News on the day of the announcement, the Prime Minister conceded some of the decisions were difficult news for Britain's armed forces. I know that some people will feel let down because there are difficult decisions here. We are making a small reduction in the size of the army and uh, slightly percentage-wise larger reductions in the Navy and the Air Force. So I know there will be people who, who do feel let down by that, but it would be worse if we put off these decisions and just said we're not going to sort out the Ministry of Defence budget, we're not going to take decisions for the future. But there are people asking why, at a time when we are at war, couldn't defence like schools and hospitals be saved at least temporarily? from having to cut its budget. Afghanistan is funded out of the Treasury Reserve. It's not funded by the Ministry of Defence. And I give my guarantee that everything that's needed in Afghanistan will be spent in Afghanistan. I, I will do everything I can to make sure the resources needed are on the front line. They will not be affected by what is happening at the Ministry of Defence. That day in October was only the starting point. With a lot of the details still being worked out, you can expect to hear the letters SDSR a lot more in 2011. Us reporting, uh, Christopher Lee, uh, with the benefit of two months' hindsight, did the Defence Review make the right calls, do you think? Uh, no, it shouldn't have been a Defence Review in the first place. I mean, if you're making a Defence Review based on the fact that you're in Afghanistan, then make the Defence Review on this scale when you come out of Afghanistan. So, you know, make some changes and put in, for example, somebody who's supposed to be at a, a fixed procurement, and they've done that, a man called Bernard Gray, who is the, so is the wizard. there. Who is, the, who is the, well, is the hope there. He's a good analyst. Whether he can actually work the system or not is, is, is another matter. But I think it was too early, the defence review, but each department had to have one. Michael Codner, um just before the defence review, we got a new Chief of Defence Staff, General Sir David Richards. Um, what kind of arena is he moving into, do you think? Well, uh, he's, um, he is uh, quite a character in, uh, in, in his own for, right. He's up for it, isn't he? And he's he, up to it. Absolutely. And uh, he, um, in his final months as Chief of the General Staff, he handled the business of protecting the army in a far more subtle way, I think, than his predecessor did, mm. <laughs> Richard Dallant. And mm. I'm not... I'm not um, and Richard had a lot him. of <laughs> important things to say, which needs to be said by somebody. But in terms of actually he kicked moving off the agenda, around, didn't he? he did indeed. Um, uh, he's a gunner. I have predispositions mm. towards the gunners being a gunner brat. <laughs> and in the <laughs> army tradition, declared, the gunners are the ones yourself. that understand, <laughs> understand science and stuff. Um, but um, uh, and he he speaks very much um, from the heart, and uh, I think that it was um, a, a good choice. Um, 
bearing in mind it would probably have to be a soldier, mm. uh, given our current situation. Um, Claire, if you could reverse one decision from the Defence Review, what would it be? Well, I'm looking at this really from the outside, but I think decommissioning the Harriers quite so quickly is something I think the public are going to be questioning. Um, why do they have to be out of action quite so soon? Could they not have been kept in service, given that we are all being told maybe this is a media problem, that you have two aircraft carriers and no planes to put on them uh, in the foreseeable future? Michael? This is a failure of process. What they did was say to the individual services, right, you've got to make this amount of cuts. What How are you, you going do? to make them? The Navy, protect the carriers, we'll get rid of uh, frigates and destroyers if necessary because we can get them back. The RAF, we want to keep our tornadoes so get rid of the Harriers. When you put the two together, it just doesn't make sense. So it was just a classic case of everyone protecting their own ground, was well, it, it, Christopher? It, 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 it was to some extent, but the thing that we haven't mentioned, and we really ought to, that within this is the withdrawal from Germany. Mm. That is going to be the single biggest change mm. in British defence policy, deployment, etc. Because Afghanistan will be out, Iraq we're almost out of. But Germany has been mm. the, the reason for the British Army, for example, the main reason for the British Army for, uh, since the Second World War. Absolutely. We're coming out of there. Interesting, talking to, talking to a, a general earlier this week, and we, I was saying jokingly about, about the tanks, you know, you could bring a load of tanks back and you stick piece of wear notices on the, in lay-bys on... <laughs> and he said, well, the other thing is, he said, uh, as, a, as an armoured man, I tell you, we have lost the skill now to actually manoeuvre large formations of tanks. Uh, and so, you know, the, the day of the main battle tank, and this is from a tankista, the mm. day of the main battle tank in the British Army is finished. The day of Germany for the British Army is finished. The question is, bring them back slowly because you've got to put them somewhere, mm. but do you put the whole lot somewhere? Answer, no, you can't put everybody in Kinloss, can you? Well, and, I mean, you could say this reflects a grand strategic choice, which uh, goes back, as you say, mm. to before the Second World War, back to the Britain and its military that it had um, before the great continental engagements. Mm. Uh, and uh, if you took that forward in 2015 to make the choices that reflect that, then this would be um, a somewhat different force than um, continuity from Afghanistan, which is where we are now. Well, whatever decisions have been made in the Strategic Defence and Security Review, David Cameron's promised to protect funding for frontline operations in Afghanistan. The number of foreign troops killed in Afghanistan this year passed 700 this week. More than 100 of those fatalities were among British forces. There's no doubt it's been another very tough year in Afghanistan, but both military and political leaders insist there has been progress, and they're determined to get British combat forces out of the country by 2015. Paul Osborne looks back at the year in Afghanistan. It's nine years now since US-led forces invaded Afghanistan, a presence in the country longer than that of the Soviet Red Army. But after thousands of deaths, is Afghanistan any more secure, any safer than it was in 2001? The year started with a warning from the insurgents, a series of coordinated suicide attacks in Kabul. It came as foreign forces prepared for their biggest offensive since the invasion. General Sir Nick Parker, then Deputy Commander of ISAF, set out the aims of the surge in troop numbers. The first part of the surge is going to take place in Helmand and Kandahar, and it is designed to confront the insurgency and prove that it is being undermined. Operation Mushtarak was launched in February, with Afghan forces joining an offensive against the Taliban in Helmand, 15,000 troops in total in, at times, ferocious fighting. Military leaders say they made significant gains. 
The U.S. troop surge, sending another 30,000 to Afghanistan, was meant to quell the insurgency and clear the way for a handover to Afghan forces and an eventual withdrawal of NATO troops. President Obama replaced Stanley McChrystal this year as the head of NATO forces. His replacement, General David Petraeus, insists the surge is working. But increasingly, it seems negotiation with the Taliban will be the only way to secure a lasting peace. Hamid Karzai says he is open to talks. But first, the insurgents must embrace democracy. The offer of talks to the Taliban goes to those who are not part of al-Qaeda or other terrorist networks who have accepted the Afghan constitution, who will accept the Afghan constitution and who will return to a normal, peaceful life in Afghanistan. This is a conflict, though, that stretches beyond Afghanistan's borders. ISAF airstrikes have repeatedly targeted militants in Pakistan. In October, militants attacked NATO supply convoys on the border. David Cameron has said that Afghanistan and Pakistan combined are his top foreign policy priority. And on a recent visit to Afghanistan, the Prime Minister insisted he was optimistic about progress. Even here in Helmand, a tough place, uh, actually there are more markets open, more schools open, more of the public protected, and also the Taliban, I think, taking a huge beating from uh, very successful British and American forces. But the price of that progress is high. In February, the number of British lives lost in Afghanistan passed the death toll from the Falklands. On his first visit to Afghanistan after becoming Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir David Richards insisted that things are improving, though he's warned 2011 will be tough with more casualties. And he says military means alone won't secure Afghanistan's future. I've always said that in every insurgency there is going to be a point at which you start a political process um, where it's quite clear from our intelligence that the Taliban are beginning to hurt. You know, there's a huge surge. It's only now really getting into, it, into gear. And the discussions focused more than ever before now on when British forces can leave. David Cameron is clear he wants combat troops out by 2015, the year after the planned handover of security control to Afghan forces. And that deadline will dominate British military operations in the coming year, according to Lieutenant General James Bucknell, ISAF's deputy commander. We're entering this phase now of transition, and we're also entering a phase where we know that by December 2014 we've got a goal, which is to transition security responsibility to the Afghans. And setting ourselves up for that goal and making sure that we've got the right processes and the checks and balances to achieve that, I think is probably the big challenge of the next few months and probably the whole, whole of next year. David Richard says that 2015 target date is doable, saying NATO forces aren't trying to create an ideal state. Afghanistan good enough will, he says, be sufficient for foreign forces to honourably withdraw. But how can that be measured? What counts as real success in Afghanistan? Questions the government and military leaders must try to answer in 2011. Paul Osborne with that report. Well, Christopher Lee is still with me, along with Michael Codner and Claire Spencer. Um, Christopher, dominant topic this year has been the withdrawal timetable. Do you think Britain and the other coalition forces are just looking for a way out? They've always been looking for a way out. I mean, they're in the wrong war, aren't they? And they've, always, they've known this for some time. The most important thing to remember is that, uh, for example, a couple of weeks ago, we had the uh, Chief of the Defence Staff talking at Michael's Institute, and he was saying that um, how it improved in six weeks, the whole position. You ain't going to fix a war in six <laughs> weeks. It was just the fact that he could go there and have a drink some, somewhere, a cup of tea somewhere with, with, with local people. No, they aren't, it's, it's not a question of 
looking for a way out. They're determined to have a way out. Therefore, you get into this whole business. How come we now tell people when we're leaving, which is the thing that we have mm. never done, that we've always objected, and we've always said it was daft, and Prime Minister said it was daft, and that's why they said you couldn't do it. Now we want to be out by because 2014. But having said that, if you don't set a timetable, you are just going to be there forever, aren't you? Yeah, no, no, you're not. No, but, uh, I mean, Iraq was a perfect example of that. Then there wasn't a timetable. We got out when, it was, uh, when the time was right politically. But the thing about Afghanistan, is that it is the wrong war. You're not going to win it by military, military means. We all know that. Um, so what you do, you get out by 2014, just as you're moving up to an election. The president gets out, starts getting out by 2011, just as he's moving up to an election. This is not too cynical. Um, and what you, <laughs> and what you, only slightly. Yeah, and what you leave behind, you leave behind the CIA... Uh, who run, for example, the drones, who run the predators to do the remote uh, bombing, the remote killing, the co cut, throat cutting of, the, uh, of, of Taliban. Incidentally, they've just had to pull out the station chief of the CIA because mm. it was, he was getting threatened and he, they've had to pull him out. Mm. You leave the CIA, you leave the special forces in and you keep just basically getting on and killing those guys off and that keeps the, that keeps the kettle on the simmer rather than on the boil. Well, that's that sorted then. Uh, what's interesting, though, um, Claire, apart from the strategic side mm. of things, is what's been happening in, in Britain in the way the public mood has changed towards the forces. How, how would you look at that over the year? How do you think it's Well, developed? I think there's been a lot more focus on the human interest. There's the Wooten-Bassett effect, obviously, as servicemen are, are brought home, and that's been very heavily covered, covered by the media. It's provoked questions, obviously, about why are you such young? And I think it's the youth of... Uh, of the casualties, why such young men are dying there. Uh, but there's also the question of what happens to those who survive, the very severely injured. And there's been a number of documentaries this year on the real heroism of extremely young men uh, going through the process of getting themselves mobile again. There was a very touching one about, a, uh, a, I think he was only 17, 18, and he had a 16-year-old fiancé who stuck with him at least for the first year as, as he went through various hospital processes. So I think the public are, are very keenly aware Aware that while many young people in this country are daubed as lager louts and they're out getting drunk every every weekend, there are also these very young men facing severe injuries and also mental uh, difficulties, but they, they focus less on those than the physical difficulties at a very young age. So this is something that I think will continue. Michael, if you were to look back at, over the year uh, and the situation in Afghanistan, how would you assess it? Well, uh, f uh, looking at it from um, at, at the military's achievements, I think it's very significant. I mean, there, there, there have been rises in, in, in insurgencies and casualties, but that, to some extent, is due to um, the rise in numbers of, of, um, of uh, British-American, etc., military in there, and therefore there's more activity and more people are killed. Mm. Um, uh, the problem is not, to my mind, uh, that the military isn't doing its, its job, it's doing it very well. The problem, as um, Jamie McIntosh has said, has been you know, the failure of statecraft at mm. supporting what the military are doing. Um, and... Uh, uh, when you hear David Richards and others saying how well things are going on in Helmand, uh, I, I don't dispute that. I dispute <laughs> what happens later, yeah. particularly when um, the military um, withdraw and uh, whether the Afghan forces can take over. Very quick point. Mm. Are you, Michael, do you think it's actually quite surprising how low the casualties are in this war? Uh, certainly, compared with um, with uh, other, other insurgencies and with the technologies that are you think available they're low to you, I do. Yes, I do. I mean, looking at it from a military point of view, the terms of numbers, um, um, not the numbers of wounded, 
but the deaths mm. killed in action. I think it's a remarkably no, that, low figure. That, but that is perhaps an achievement of medical science, it is, isn't it? It's, really it's, it's partly that, but it's also, as Michael says, we've got more people there doing different so sort of fighting. People die in different ways when you fight in different ways, mm. and that's something which mm. is very difficult to understand sometimes for the general public. All right, stay with us. While 10,000 British military personnel remain in Afghanistan, our operation in Iraq came to an effective end in May. A handful of British troops remain in the country, though they're expected to leave in the next six months. But insurgent attacks uh, continue in Iraq. The Iraq Body Count website says almost 4,000 civilians have died this year, though that's around half the figure from two years ago. Um, Christopher, civilian casualties falling, but seven years after the invasion, it's still a very dangerous place to be, isn't it? It's a very dangerous place to be, but, I mean, as, as Claire would sort of, has mm. been following this, would tell us, at, at last, some form of government is starting to take place in Iraq. Mm. Um, and when government takes place, it means that you sort it out all sorts of things, for example, who rules uh, among the different, uh, different groupings, also where the commercial boundaries are, what you do with the, with, with, with the oil suppliers, and therefore the economy is, is, is getting better. But the British, who have been training down in, in Basra, but with the Navy especially, they are finally going... And I, I'm not sure, I get a sense, they're not going under the most easiest circumstances, just as when we pulled out of Iraq, uh, we didn't pull out with heads all that held high, according to other people. Yeah, Claire, um, give, us a, give us an oversight of the situation in Iraq at the moment, but also the kind of le lessons we can learn about our withdrawal from Iraq for and apply them to Afghanistan. Well, I think I'd start with the second question to say Iraq is a very different place from Afghanistan. I mean, it is true a government is finally taking place, but the current situation has been after a lot of horse trading, a lot of discussions since the elections in March. Let us not forget it's taken them the best part of three quarters of this year to reach a point where they finally might be able to reconfirm the existing... Did that surprise you at all? Well, I think the, the time it's taken surprises me. The horse trading certainly doesn't because there's a lot of minority interest to be a accommodated here. There's obviously the Sunnis are an overall minority, but there are sh severe divisions amongst the majority Shia population. And I think the very fact that if it sticks and all the interests are represented to the satisfaction of everyone, then this will be a good thing in terms of moving forward. I think the lack of parallel with Afghanistan is that we are a long way from any kind of political consensus. It is a state which is very fragile. It doesn't have the institutions that the Iraqis still have managed, corrupt though many of them are, to hang on to. What about the withdrawal itself of British troops? Well, the withdrawal of British troops, it's true that uh, the British forces were in one place in, in southern Iraq and, of course, they're, they're obviously in one place in, in Afghanistan. But I think Afghanistan is going to be very much harder to say we've reached a moment where there's a political process which is sufficiently mature for us to leave. I don't think we're going to see that. We're still going to be discussing who is the strong man, whether it's Karzai mm. or a successor, who can hold this place together. And until uh, sufficient factions of the Taliban, and I know this is what political process, the language of political process covers is we've got to do deals with the Taliban. Who are the Taliban? I mean they seem to be popping up in different forms across Afghanistan and there are very, very big regional differences here which it's not just a, a matter of settling Helmand or the southern provinces, it means including um, areas close to Iran for example around Herat and other provinces where there are a number of different issues. And the other thing is that it, the solution to Afghanistan is not in Afghanistan, it's in Pakistan, it's in India, Absolutely. it's in Iran. It's a regional issue, I agree. That's a very good point. The, the important lesson 
one important lesson for the military anyhow is to leave with the heads held high and so they need to construct a story and the planning. If we go alongside the Americans it's not we're, too we're much of a problem. We're back to that deadline problem. idea but, aren't we? Well, but, but also it, you don't want a, a Basra, whatever the pluses and minuses or the truth or falsehoods about Basra, you don't want a Basra because reputation is so so mm. important for United Kingdom's future defence policy. Alright, let's turn our attentions now to the tensions on the Korean Peninsula 2010 was just a few weeks old when North and South Korea exchanged fire near the disputed maritime border. In March, a South Korean warship on that border uh, was uh, was actually uh, sunk and the North denied responsibility. And just a few weeks ago, Northern forces fired on a South Korean island. Um, Michael, do the tensions between Seoul and Pyongyang go beyond just the handover of power from one generation to the other in the north? Well, that's certainly a factor in, in stimulating um, the tensions. Uh, um, the exact reasons it'll be for historians to establish. Um, the, the important thing is that for all the major players around this, there is some sort of a common goal about um, ensuring that there isn't a major war breaking up between North and South Korea involving China, involving the United States, involving a whole lot of other partners. Do you buy this idea of a united Korea ever? Well, um, uh, that's certainly not out of the question, and that certainly would be um, probably the best future. Interesting earlier this week. Uh, they, uh, the South Koreans had a live-firing exercise. North Korea mm. said, you do that and we will screw you. They mm. didn't. Yes. They were quiet. Today, there is another exercise, live-firing, going on by the South Koreans. The North Koreans are not doing anything about mm. it. Oh, That's significant. Classic gunboat diplomacy. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's move on, because at the start of this year, Britain and America agreed to fund counter-terrorist operations in Yemen. Proof of the threat emerging from the country came in October, when explosives sent from Yemen were intercepted on cargo planes in the UK and Dubai. Uh, Claire, we'll mark the 10th anniversary of the September the 11th attacks in 2011. Are we any closer now to understanding the roots of this terrorism or how to defeat it? Uh, yes and no. I think intelligence and intelligence cooperation has improved enormously, uh, particularly on the US side, although as we've seen from WikiLeaks, some of it's uh, leaking out in ways they hadn't anticipated. Um, understanding the roots, I think we continue to fail to acknowledge uh, the extent to which our own actions uh, provoke some of these responses. This is a very uncomfortable what, thing to what, say. What kind of thing? Well, the invasion of Iraq certainly didn't help. I think that was the single biggest mistake uh, in terms of dealing with the aftermath. I think there was a certain sympathy, certainly across the Middle East, the Muslim world, for going after al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. But instead of doing that properly, uh, the deviation to it in Iraq has just has, has been okay. actual fodder uh, for all the... And on that note, we must leave it. Sorry. And that is it from SITREP Review of the Year. Thank you very much to everyone for your time, and we'll be back in just over a week's time. News, discussion and analysis. This is SITREP on BFBS.